Well now, do open your Bibles to that passage we read earlier, end of Matthew's Gospel and chapter 1. And um, we know the story, we know the emphasis of this particular passage of the Christmas story. Um, And I want to concentrate really upon verse 23, which is talking about this prophecy of uh, Isaiah, back in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, where it says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. As the Apostles' Creed says, conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. And we're uh, probably all too familiar with the story that lies behind those words of the Apostles' Creed, uh, the Annunciation uh, to Mary of the fact that she was going to become the mother of the Messiah. We learn about that in Luke's Gospel, don't we? The very conception itself as the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, um, the outrage of righteous Joseph that we read about briefly in the passage before us until an angel um, helpfully explains it all to him in a dream. And then their marriage and the ultimate birth itself and the naming of the child according to the angel's instruction. They were to give him the name Jesus, we read here, which means the Lord saves, of course, because he will save his people from their sins. But uh, as I say, to get to the heart of this passage uh, in the time that we have, I want us to concentrate on this one verse. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Matthew here is, as I say, quoting this famous prophecy, which was given by the prophet Isaiah about 700 years uh, previously. But in fact, uh, God had promised the virgin birth uh, well before this very clear prophecy that is made by Isaiah, uh, many, many centuries uh, before that. In fact, we can go right back to the Garden of Eden, uh, to find the earliest hints, not just of the coming of a Messiah, but of the virgin birth itself. And um, you'll remember that uh, God says to Satan in the Garden of Eden, after he has successfully tempted Adam and Eve and the fall has taken place, God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. It's a most remarkable statement there in Genesis 3 and verse 15. I mean, just even the first part of that verse, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Why does God say that? Why does he not say, I will put enmity between you and the man? which would have been more in tune with the times. And uh, there's Adam, the head of the household, supposedly. And then he says, I'll put enmity between your seed and hers. And again, the word seed is not sexually interchangeable. The word seed used in connection with the woman, again, is a very remarkable thing. So we have... Two things, just in that first part of that verse, Genesis 3.15, why does he speak about the woman? Enmity between you, 
Satan and the woman. Why the woman? And between you and her seed, and then the explanation comes in the second part of the verse. You will strike his heel. He says to Satan, yes, you will, you will hurt him. You will do everything you can. Ultimately, you will put him on a cross. But even so, he will crush your head. Which would you rather have, your heel damaged or your head crushed? The crushing of the head of Satan speaks, of course, of the, uh, the, the, the destruction, ultimately, of Satan himself by this seed of the woman. It's a really strange verse and can only really be understood in the light of the incarnation, in the light of the story of Christmas. And so I say this prophecy, which obviously is quoted from Isaiah chapter 7, goes right back to the very beginning. The story of the incarnation is taught in the Bible from the third verse, from the third chapter rather. And uh, we're encouraged to know as soon as man falls, God doesn't leave us in tent hooks to, to fall into despair in this very same chapter that we learn about the coming of sin into the world, the very same chapter we learn about our salvation that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, as we now understand it, all in the light of the New Testament. That's an incredible thing. Um, Paul, in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he thinks about what happened in Eden in this regard. And Paul says, um, Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Oh, that verse isn't preached on very much these days for all sorts of reasons, but uh, um, it, it can be understood, but can easily be understood. But I'm not going to do it now because we'll be diverted in all sorts of different ways. But listen, this is not the point I want to make. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But then he immediately lifts womanhood to exalted heights. He says immediately, but woman will be saved through the childbearing or through the birth of the child. I think that's the best way to understand it. You read the best commentaries, that's what they'll say. Woman will be saved through the birth of the child. In other words, I think Paul is deliberately balancing two things here. He's also speaking in this about women and men and their relationship and so on and so forth. And this is about the most exalted thing he can possibly say in relation to the great debate between men and women and so on and so forth. But what he's saying is this, that when God, when God united himself with our humanity, he chose a woman. Just as he says sin entered the human race through a woman, so did the Savior from sin. And that's the glorious thought, isn't it? And, and there's this wonderful spiritual symmetry in what Paul is saying there. And of course, as we find it everywhere in the scriptures, and as we find it particularly when we look at the Christmas story, and most particularly at the story of the virgin birth. But Let's ask this question. Why is the virgin birth so important? How would you answer that question? Because a lot of people say, well, I, I can just about accept that there was this man called Jesus and that he was a wonderful man, an example and teacher, and so on and so forth. But uh, all these miraculous things surrounding him, I don't believe in them at all. And uh, it starts right at the beginning, doesn't it, with this whole question of the virgin birth. How can I get even past that? It's one of the things that made me doubt that Jesus ever existed, because I can't believe that fact, so why should I believe all the facts that follow? 
So it's a major stumbling block. So why is it mentioned here? Why isn't it something that perhaps the Gospel writer would want to keep quiet about? So the more people will believe in Jesus. But of course the reason why it's included, why it's there, is because it's absolutely vital to our salvation. It's so important to understand why the virgin birth is so important. I give you lots of reasons, but I'm not going to, I'm just going to give you three reasons uh, briefly. Firstly, it's important so that we should know that this child that is born is not the child of any mere man. He's not just a, a child of a mere man who's being born in the world, but he is the eternal Son of God. Almighty God was taking human nature to himself. And we need to understand, don't we, that in order to be the long-promised Savior, Jesus had to be both fully human to bear the burden of our sins and fully God to have the power to release us from that sin. It's only this unique union of natures. Could be very careful how I say this, theologically. But the very fact that he has two natures, his human nature and his divine nature, this is so absolutely crucial to the ability of the Lord Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. In the Old Testament, when they sacrificed lambs and bulls and, and goodness knows what other animals, and the blood was shed, we're told in the New Testament, the blood of animals can never take away sin. So why were they killed? Because they were a picture pointing forward to the one whose death and whose blood could take away sin. An animal's death cannot in any way compensate for the sin of a human being. But the death of the fully human, perfect human, sinless human, the Lord Jesus Christ, who also happened to be God himself, can take away sin. And nothing else can do that. So that's fundamentally important. But secondly, and I think this is important as well, Mary's virginity powerfully conveys Christ's perfect holiness and purity to us. Remember, he doesn't just uh, take our death upon himself. He also gives us his righteous life, doesn't he? We have to be perfect to enter heaven. No one's going to enter heaven if they're imperfect. Why should God allow his heaven to be contaminated by you? You're not going to get into heaven unless you're perfect. And just because your sins are forgiven doesn't make you perfect. The only way you're going to be perfect and allowed to enter heaven is because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So that when God the Father sees you, he sees Jesus. Of course, Jesus is going to get into heaven. He's in heaven already. But you have to be perfect to enter heaven. Otherwise, you'll spoil heaven. It's obvious, isn't it? And that depends upon the righteousness of Christ. The very fact of the virginity of Mary in the birth of Jesus emphasizes that. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, when the Ark of the Covenant, which of course was the symbol of God's presence upon earth, when the Ark of the Covenant, that wooden box, 
was conveyed from place to place. We read that it had to be carried on a new cart. It had to be drawn, this cart, by cows that had never been yoked. You can read all about it in 1 Samuel. Why? All to indicate the holiness of God's presence and the fact that he must not be contaminated by anything else that had been used before for some other purpose. And similarly, the Son of God begins his life among us in a virgin's womb, just as he would eventually enter Jerusalem, you remember, on a donkey that had never before been ridden. And his body was going to be buried, you remember, in a tomb that had never been used before. Why do you think, why, why are they stressed? What does it matter? It matters for the same reason the presence of God in the ark had to be carried on a new cart and drawn by cows that had never been yoked together for any other reason. This, this is powerful symbolism. That the presence of God has come into the world and must not be contaminated in any way. It's a single of the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The virgin birth is, is vital to this. We're told that Joseph and Mary did not come together until the son was born. This is all part of the story. And tells us the importance of the sovereignty and divinity of the Lord God himself. So that's another reason. Just one other brief reason. Thirdly, had Jesus been born in a normal way, we're just talking about why it's important. Why the virgin birth is important. Thirdly, had Jesus been born in the normal way, he would have been the natural son of Adam and therefore heir to his sin and guilt. The virgin birth breaks that deadly chain. And it's only because of the virgin birth that Jesus can come as failed Adam's replacement. He's called in the New Testament... The last Adam, isn't he? He's contrasted all the time with Adam. Adam, who came, was the perfect man, created by God, but fell into sin, contaminated himself, so that God had to separate himself from this, this sin, now sinful man in order to protect his own holiness, and also, also in mercy to protect Adam, who otherwise would have been burnt up by the very presence of God as a sinner, as we know. But here is the Lord Jesus Christ, Adam's replacement, so that when, by faith, we find ourselves in Christ, we are no longer in Adam. This is such an important point. It's, it's, it's there in the Scriptures. It's not just some obscure, profound bit of theology. It's it's there in the scriptures for all of us to understand and benefit from. The most common description of a Christian by the Apostle Paul is that somebody in Christ. That's his little shorthand, isn't it, for what a Christian is. A Christian is somebody in Christ. And the fact he, he thought of that most commonly as what a Christian was shows how important it was to his understanding of, what, of the Christian gospel. You're in Christ. And the fact is, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. We're all born in Adam because we're sinners. We inherit Adam's sinful state. 
A little baby, often said, you don't need to teach a little child how to sin. Because we all have that basic inclination to be away from God. We don't want God. People, people would love it. If you could prove to people there was no God, how delighted they would be. That's just a sign of the sin in the human heart. But of course we can't prove that because it isn't true. God is always there. Always there. Just touching the consciences of even the most evil people. God has set eternity in our hearts. We're made in the image of God, no matter how much defaced that image can be. We cannot get rid of that. And thank God when we are worked upon by the Holy Spirit, we don't want to get rid of that anymore. We long to realize what it means to be made in the image of God. We run to the Lord Jesus Christ, find he doesn't judge us, but welcomes us with open arms and says, at last I found you. You're now my child. We find salvation in Christ. There's no other message like it. But it's a glorious thing. And we need to understand that we are either in Adam or in Christ. And uh, in Christ, we regain God and we regain heaven. We regain eternal life. That's why Paul said, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And that, and that covers us all. This Christmas time, doesn't it? We're either still in Adam and we shall ultimately die in our sins eternally. Or we are in Christ because we've escaped Adam and we shall all be made alive forever with the life of God. It's vital. Without the virgin birth, that cannot be true. These things are fundamentally true. The virgin birth is not a, an, a miracle that we should be embarrassed about. Let's not talk about it. We want to get people interested in Jesus. Let's leave aside all the miraculous elements because they won't believe that. That's hard. But it isn't. It's true. And as people understand their need of Christ in a real, desperately real and profound way, then these miraculous truths will become totally meaningful to them and they will grow, draw great succor and encouragement and their faith will be strengthened as a result of understanding that all of this has been thought through by God in eternity past. So vital for us, isn't it? But now let's turn very briefly to the second half of the verse. I'm not going to take so long on this at all. The second half of this amazing prophecy that Matthew tells us has now been finally fulfilled. Remind you of it, verse 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. We've looked at that. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. If Jesus' birth means now that God is with us, it reminds us of the solemn fact that without Jesus' birth, God is not with us. If the birth of Jesus means Emmanuel, without the birth of Jesus, we don't have Emmanuel. We don't have God with us. And of course, that's, that's true. No one can say God is with them unless the Lord Jesus Christ is the king of their life and they're in his, their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. We rejoice at Christmas time 
that the Lord has found a way of dealing with the sin that separates us from him. God with us. God with us speaks of glory. Imagine that. God with us. God with us speaks of amazing grace. And God with us speaks of an incredible bond. You know, that, that little word with is not just an accident of English translation. In the original, it's a very strong word. God with us. We are now bound to God by the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ this Christmas time. The glory and the grace come together in us because of all that the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And don't you think it's rather wonderful that Matthew, who was of course the most Jewish of all the gospel writers, insists on translating the Hebrew word Emmanuel. And that's what he does here, doesn't it? He says, they will call him Emmanuel, brackets, which means God with us. So he translates this Hebrew word into the common language of the time, the, the Greek of the time, which everybody knew a bit about and certainly would understand the words God with us in Greek. That's what it means. And this most Jewish of writers realizes that God is no longer now simply enshrined in one nation, the nation of Israel, in an old covenant which was a national covenant which was made between God and his special people of the Old Testament. But that has now been shattered and exploded. It was vital for a time. But when the times had fully come, the Messiah arrives in the world and a new covenant is inaugurated in the blood, not of bulls and goats, but in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is now for all nations. And it's wonderful, this Matthew who insists on saying, Emmanuel means God with us. He wants all the nations of the world to be able to say, yes, Emmanuel, God is with us. That's why at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we have the Great Commission. Go and teach the word to all nations. What? You're a Jewish man. Come on. Teach all nations. And he says, remember this, I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am Emmanuel to the very end of the age. See this theme from the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel where he stresses this God with us and hints at the fact it's going to be for all nations. And then he comes to the end of his gospel and it all makes sense. It's all been revealed now, hasn't it? Here is the Lord Jesus, the saviour of all nations. Everyone needs the gospel and he, is, he will be God with them, God with all of us who trust him till the end of the age. What a joy it is for Christians around the world to know that the Lord lives in our hearts by faith and by his spirit and that he is specially with us uh, whenever two or three are gathered together in his name. He walks with us. He talks with us. He guides us and guards us. He gives us strength to overcome temptation and sin. And he delivers us from danger and despair. He does all of these things 
and we should remember and give thanks to our God for all of these things that Jesus does for us, especially at this Christmas time, because, it is, because God is with us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that all these blessings are true. But then as we close, surely the greatest happiness of the believer this Christmas time lies in the fact that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, not only to the very end of the age, but we rejoice that Jesus will be Emmanuel, God with us, for all eternity. Do you remember the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ shortly before the cross? There in John 17, it's called the great high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus and how it comes to a great climax when he says in verse 24 of John 17, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. And I think at Christmas time, we should be longing for that. You know, we want all the prayers of Jesus to be answered. We know that many of the prayers of Jesus have been answered already, but not all. Not all the prayers that Jesus made 2,000 years ago on earth have been answered yet. And this is one of them. He says, I want all of those who believe in me, down the running centuries of time, to be with me, to see me, and to share in my glory. What a glorious thing that is. And whether, of course, he is with us on earth or whether we are with him in glory, it essentially doesn't make much difference, does it? It doesn't matter where we are as long as we're with Jesus. In fact, Paul says it's better to be with him. That's far better, he says. But I says, uh, for the meantime, you remember the, the passage, he says, it's more important that I'm with you and that I know that Jesus is with me because of Emmanuel. And that's why the birth of the Holy Child has uh, sweetened, of course, the death of so many millions of believers down the centuries. Do you remember, perhaps you recall, the, the very last words of, um, of John Wesley, the great 18th century evangelist. Um, the last words that were recorded that he spoke were these. Uh, the best of all is God is with us. And that's how he summarized the gospel at the very end of his life with his final breath. And so the question is, do we all know Emmanuel this Christmas time? Is God with you? Or do you perhaps even feel that God is still against you? Is God with you because he is your savior? How could any of us refuse to go to the Son of God when he has come all that way down to us in order to save us from our sins? Why can't we just go to the Lord Jesus Christ who is as close to us as our next breath, who makes himself available to all who want salvation and peace and joy in their hearts this Christmas time? Surely it's impossible for us to resist such a glorious invitation. Surely it's unthinkable, and surely we won't do it.